The fire in my words. Fire. History unfolded. Here on this stage. I love what's cooking. The mic is hot. I'm ready to I'm go. ready to go. Come on. Hey, slab, no cipher in effect. We ready for warfare. We ready to give back. Give it back. Crossroads cipher's on deck. Recycling guard science. Salute my mic check and walk with it. All hell fucking listen. Get down. Get him up. Fuck him up. Mill cipher. It's the return of the guard, let the dollars be born Close your mouth from shock and get your peoples on a horn Tell them that I reforged the movement sword And I'm ready to get it on Destined Aragorn, battle tested I'm in the struggle worldwide Bringing coaches out the nooks and crannies It's our time for rhyme elevation We stiffen the competition He's back All right, all right Ron Holland here and a good day to you I am particularly excited about this uh, episode, episode 13, and it is going to be quite fascinating. And I want you to hold on to your seats because some will be offended. Uh, some will certainly celebrate the honesty and the transparency, and certainly others will want to excoriate me. <laughs> so we're going to jump right into this thing because... You know, family, we are in the midst of a global pandemic, and I have a lot of questions to ask. Conflict in a host of hot spots around the world. You know, Russia is said to be arming Taliban fighters to target American troops. Question, what's going on in the world? Bigotry, racism running rampant, not just in this country, but, um, you know, you think about part of the Western world uh, where white supremacy and white nationalist fervor is sweeping. Um, it is extraordinary. It's like a festering cancer, not just in Virginia, uh, where white nationalists were uh, parading around suggesting that uh, Jews would not replace them and then being celebrated essentially by a bigoted president. That's a cancer. That we are dealing with conflict and rancor holding our political uh, systems hostage. Our leaders in government are too cowardly to denounce an authoritarian bigot that continues to sully our democracy, erode our institutions, champions, racial fissures and white grievances and some of the folks in Congress are enabling and are complicit in the anger that is permeating the Republican Party, poisoning um, our social landscape. We actually have a president who is overtly stoking racial tensions in this country, rolling back housing discrimination rules and instilling or attempting to instill fear in folks who have white skin living in suburbia, beware of those black folk who are going to bring your housing prices down. That is a man that is poisoning the social landscape of this country. Did I mention a pandemic that is claiming the lives of upward of a thousand people a day. Hear me clearly, a thousand people a day, a figure that appears to be acceptable loss to uh, Trump and his administration and his enablers in Congress and his rabid supporters. Hundreds of thousands of coronavirus deaths globally. Global infections fast approaching 20 million. Families are facing tremendous financial crisis. People are being evicted from their place of residence. Families are going to food banks. People are going hungry. 
unemployment continues to teeter in the teens while Wall Street is vacillating. The economy is uh, swinging back and forth like a um, misdirected pendulum. The question that I have, where is God in all of this confusion? And perhaps a better question is, why is God specifically the God of Scripture in which hundreds of millions of people from various faith traditions believe? These questions and what our nation and indeed the world is grappling with, you know, it got me thinking about an area of religious tradition that always befuddled me how we view God according to scripture. When we open scripture and read about all of the conflict and deaths and slaughter in the name of the God of scripture and at the behest of the God of scripture, can an objective reader of scripture conclude that the God of scripture is a murderer ordering the wholesale slaughter of thousands of people. Can one rightfully conclude that if a person or a whole nation of people are killed at the request and behest of the God of scripture, can that God indeed being labeled or called a murderer. Now, no one that I know that is religious or tied to a particular religion is labeling God as a murderer. That isn't being uttered by anyone that I know at least. But when you open the pages of Scripture, the conclusion, especially as it relates to the deaths of so many people, at the behest of the God of Scripture, it can certainly be drawn if viewed with objectivity and not the tethers of religious identification. So as episode 13 unfolds, it's going to be extremely uncomfortable for a lot of people, especially my Christian family and friends, because... Addressing religious conviction can be fraught. It is an arduous terrain. And I understand that implicitly. So I know that I am required to be sensitive uh, with this. But it is my goal to help set the record straight about an issue that pierces my consciousness and my heart when I read this stuff. All that is happening around the world today. And what uh, has occurred during antiquity and how God is inevitably viewed, it invariably, without ever uttering a word of slander, has to be reckoned with. Is the God of Scripture a murderer demanding that his chosen people fan out and murder and kill and slaughter Groups and people that they didn't like. Some will take offense to what I articulate during this episode because it will go against the grain of traditional thought. But I want to beckon you to listen with a open heart and an open mind as well as a critical eye and the critical need for you to draw your own conclusions as well as engage in an exhaustive study in these areas uh, that I will cover. And for the sake of transparency, I wrote about this issue um, literally back in 2016. And as I was developing uh, this piece that uh, ultimately Um, became part of my book, uh, The Fire in My Words, the anthology of a social provocateur, this piece that I wrestled with, absolving God of murder. 
Because at the end of the day, and of course, at the end of this episode, you will be able to rightfully draw a distinction between the love of our creator. Who is responsible for all of creation. You will be able to draw a distinction between our creator and the God of scripture. And I'm going to talk about that uh, at length a little later in the episode. But yes, there is a distinction, an extremely important one. And as we wrestle with the turmoil that is gripping this world, the tendency to put all of this confusion on the shoulders of our creator is the inevitable consequence of um, our inability to take ownership of our behavior. Indeed, um, we blame God for humanity's choices and decisions, and the result is a skewed and reckless view of our creator, especially as it relates to scripture. So episode 13 It is my effort to absolve God, our creator of murder. I want you to take a listen to this. And every time the phrase, the Jews, appeared in my Sunday school literature, it meant something evil. The Jews were out to get Jesus. The Jews were out to get St. Paul. My Sunday school filled me with anti-Semitism. In our history, in the Western world, Christians blamed the Jews for the bubonic plague. Adolf Hitler blamed the Jews for the economic collapse of the depression that brought Hitler into power. And he decided to even the score with these enemies by annihilating them in his crematoriums in what we now call to our shame the Holocaust. You can go back a little further and you will find that there was a great Spanish armada that set sail for England. Why? To conquer Protestant England for Catholic Spain. And when that armada hit bad weather and was destroyed, it was interpreted as a victory for the Protestant God over the Catholic God. That's tribal religion. How often we have taken our tribal prejudices and sanctify them with our religious language. But in some parts of the Bible, that's exactly what we have portrayed. And somehow we've surrounded the Bible with such an aura of holiness that it's very difficult to face those things. But read some of the biblical stories for what they are. Sometimes the God portrayed in the Bible is a bloodthirsty tribal deity. Look at the story of the Exodus. It's very clear that God hates Egyptians. God sends plague after plague after plague after plague on the Egyptians. And in the middle of those plagues, even the Pharaoh has had enough. So the Pharaoh comes to Moses and says, this is all in the Bible. The Pharaoh says, enough, Moses, call your God off, we'll let you go. And so Moses prepares for the Exodus. And then the Bible says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so God could hit him again. (laughs) Great vindictiveness. And you know what the final plague was? God was going to send God's angel of death throughout all the land of Egypt. To kill, let me use the more emotional word, to murder every firstborn male in every Egyptian household. Didn't matter whether firstborn male was good or bad. The firstborn male had to go. How many of you are firstborn males in your household? (laughs) You need to read that story existentially. The conversation in the Bible is rather fascinating. Moses says to God, well, now, wait a minute, God. Some of those houses have Jews in them. How are you going to keep this angel of death from killing Jews by mistake? And God says, oh, I've thought about that, Moses. 
So I tell you what I want you to do. I want you to instruct all Jewish families to get an extended family group so that nobody's left out. And I want you to slay the Paschal lamb. And I want you to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of Jewish homes. Because God implies my angel of death's not smart enough to know the difference between a Jewish home and an Egyptian home. So he's got to have a bloody signpost out there. And when you see the bloody signpost, the angel will pass over that house and only kill Egyptians. That's tribal religion. And it's in our biblical story. I could take you to the book of Joshua. Joshua is at war with the people of Ammon called the Amorites. And Joshua is winning the war and he's routing the Ammonites, but the sun begins to go down. And Joshua prays and God stops the sun in the sky, creating the first instance of daylight saving time <laughs> for the sole purpose of allowing Joshua to kill more of his enemies. That's not a very noble purpose for stopping the sun in its route. That text, interestingly enough, was the one used to condemn Galileo. Because if Joshua can cause the sun to stop in the sky, that was clear proof that the sun rotated around the earth. And so Galileo had to be right or wrong. It's interesting how we've used the Bible. And then most people think genocide is evil. But genocide is in the Bible. The prophet, Saul address, the prophet Samuel addresses King Saul and says, in the name of God, you are to go to war against the people of Amalek. They were called the Amalekites. And in this war, says the prophet of God, you are to kill every man, every woman, every child, every suckling, every ox, every ass. What's the definition of genocide? The Bible portrays Samuel, the prophet of God, calling on the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, to commit genocide in the name of God. It's not a surprise that people today can quote the Bible to justify almost any act of terror or any prejudice that they wish to engage in. Truly fascinating. That is Bishop John Shelby Spong. Um, and certainly he is someone that I admire and I have a number of his uh, books. His writing is exceptional, and uh, his insight is extraordinary. And family, I think it is time that we have an honest conversation about the despicable things uh, we're all taught about God. If you think about what we are experiencing in this world today, a lot of the conversation revolves around Again, that question, where is God or why is God allowing this to happen? Things that you were convinced of as a child with regard to uh, God and even as an adult while you are in Bible study or are in church or whether you're reading scripture uh, in your alone or devotional time. Um, some of these areas. Uh, are quite fascinating to me. Things that you were convinced that are acceptable simply because it is written in the Bible. Now, perhaps you've never considered the gravity of what you believe. And I know that to be true because as a um, Catholic and of course, as a Baptist, um, you know, uh, you've been taught, I've been taught a lot of things to see things in a particular way. Obviously, without scholarship or without a critical eye, it's what you are taught to believe. So, for instance, that it's okay to murder children, that there is something spiritually beneficial to genocide or rape, and slaughter and slavery simply because it was supposedly done at the behest of the God in the Bible. And for me, family, there is no distinction between a modern despot murdering an entire population of people and a number of biblical figures who supposedly visited the same horror on people in the name of God simply because they either believed differently 
or didn't share the same cultural and social worldview of their murderers. Now, I know that is hard for some of you to take. If you, for instance, look at the turmoil around the world, it is reflective of this kind of insanity where dictators can wholesale slaughter individuals where a pretend authoritarian can allow thousands of people to die simply because of an agenda centered around being reelected or perhaps even gaining more wealth. The conflicts that we've seen throughout history particularly and as especially as it relates to the idea that one group or one religion has a monopoly on what God says and how God is viewed. It is dangerous in my judgment. It, it is time, family, for God, in my judgment, when we consider all the deaths that occurred uh, in antiquity, uh, in uh, modernity, It is time that we absolve God of murder and stop blaming God for the things that are happening in the world that is really the result of humanity's incessant need for control and power. In my judgment, it's time to strip blame away from the creator and place it squarely at the feet of humanity. And I want to invite you, family, particularly those of you who are Christian. I want you to read a couple of passages as we go along here. Quote, now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, that comes from 1 Samuel 15, 3. And of course, if you listen intently to uh, Bishop Spong, uh, some of the scripture that he cite, I will also cite. Quote, and utterly destroy them as we did unto Shehan, king of Espon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. Deuteronomy 3, 6. Quote, happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Psalms 137.9, taking a little child and bashing them, their head against the stones. Now, once you peel back the layers of hermeneutics and exegesis and Um, biblical interpretation and the weekly sermons that you hear in church, what you're actually reading family is sanctioned murder. What you are reading is murder. What you are being taught is murder. What is bellowing from your pastor's mouth and from his gut and diaphragm. That is murder. Forget for a moment the notion of context to somehow explain away this insanity. Murder is murder. When you dash a child's head against a stone, that is murder. When you utterly destroy them, that is murder. When you slay both man and woman and infant and suckling, that is murder. Genocide is genocide. Killing defenseless babies, infants, and children, and women is despicable and evil, and it is murder. But if context is wholly important to you, the biblical God's wrath in the instance of Amalek is directed at his descendants. For whatever the sin is, it is directed at his descendants 300 years later. Whatever the sin is, I don't have time to go through all of that. But it is directed at the 
descendants 300 years later. So apart from the wholesale annihilation of an entire population of people, which in today's world would be considered genocide. We see the God of the Bible directing the slaughter of defenseless babies, infants, and children who had nothing to do with the grievous acts of their predecessors. So to suggest that our creator is the malevolent, the vengeful, and the sadistic murderer in scripture who time after time orders the Israelites to wholesale slaughter defenseless babies, children, and women to blame that on our creator is blasphemous. The notion that our creator would sanction virgin girls to be raped by Israelite soldiers or the notion that our creator would send grizzly bears out of the forest to maul and kill 42 children because they teased a bald-headed man. That is, in my judgment, absurd. Do you honestly believe the creator has to resort to cruelty and murder to prove a point? I want you to consider that. I want you to ruminate over it, ponder it just for a while. Do you think if the if our creator can speak the world into existence, you mean to tell me he can't find a less barbaric way to convince someone to do the right thing? The God of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is in my judgment, I know Instinctively, you are going to recoil from what I'm going to say. Because this is anathema to what you believe about your God and how you're taught. But when I open the pages of the Old Testament and I read this, it is repugnant. It is cruel. It is despotic. This is, sounds like a God that is mired in bipolar tendencies and the malignant characteristics of man. Humanity is plagued with these characteristics. I can't imagine our creator being similarly fashioned. The God of the Bible, in my judgment, is wholly antithetical to the loving God of our creation. And I admonish you. To put aside the nicely wrapped sermon and the convoluted hermeneutics that rationalizes genocide and rationalizes murder and make excuses. The hermeneutics is designed to do that. So you take, for example, the God of Scripture having 70,000 people killed. 70,000 people killed because of David's census. As found in First Chronicles 21, 70,000 people killed because of a census. Consider the destruction of 60 cities and the murder of those populations for the sole purpose of Israel's encroachment and theft of those lands as found in Deuteronomy 6. Not only are men, women, the young and old murdered for the God of Scripture as found in Joshua 6, every living creature, even oxes and sheep and donkeys, are brutally slaughtered at the behest of the God of Scripture. It's stunning to me that in Judges 21, the God of Scripture orders the wholesale slaughter and killing of all the inhabitants, as in Scripture says, to best Gilead. And to add insult to injury, the only exception to be made in this instance of mass killing are virgin girls who were to be taken, forcibly raped, and married. By force. And I want you to give this. 
You know, John Shelby Spunk spoke of this bloodthirsty God of Scripture. If Israel's bloodthirsty band of killers desired more virgins, the God of Scripture instructs them. I'm talking about the God of the Bible instructs them to hide on the road. Just think about it. We, it says hide on the road, but we talk about hide in the cut and pick off a virgin of their choosing to be raped and to be made a wife. That is in scripture. We're also told that this insecure God of scripture is so jealous of other gods that in 2 Kings 10, 18 through 27, he orders another mass murder of worshipers of a different, quote, God in their place of worship. So picture it in your mind. The God of Scripture hearkens down to whomever, Israel. I want you to go into the temple and murder all of those people because they are worshiping another God. I want you to go into their temples and kill them all. The number of people murdered in this instance is nearly 400,000 with orders to kill nearly 2 million more people. Family to believe this about our creator is insane to endorse this. Oh, Murdering rampage is equally crazy. The question that I have for you is, has it ever occurred to you that the people Israel were allegedly directed to kill may have had their own story? Try for a moment to imagine being a Canaanite child as the Israelites marched over the hills to inflict the most brutal of attacks to see on the horizon an approaching army that would eventually kill your neighbors, your family, your friends, infants slaughtered at the behest of another nation's God. Why would a loving and just God who allegedly is no respecter of persons, use Israel to murder and slaughter infants and women to reveal himself to foreign nations. Why instruct Moses to take the severed heads of bow worshipers, for example, and hang them before the Lord, quote, in the sun? Couldn't the God of scripture just reveal himself to Canaan. It seems implausible to me, family, at least to me that a loving God would reject compassionate methods of revealing himself to a nation of, as we are told, idol worshipers. We're suggesting that a God who can create all this majesty and wonder in our universe is restricted to absolute brutality as a form of revelation. Now, having been in church virtually all of my life, being taught about the Moabites and the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Parasites. It's always a one-sided affair, a one-sided story. In other words, those people never told their story regarding these alleged events. Like many of you, I grew up seeing the God of Scripture through the eyes and prism of Israel. Never heard the story of the Jebusites coming from their perspective or the Amorites. So when we read about Israel's enemies, the contextual implications were that these beastly pagans and these idolaters, their crime was that from infancy to adulthood, they worshipped the gods of their culture and their land. And interestingly enough, those pagan gods, askewed and hated by Israel, happens to be the same God who is the object of their worship. I want to repeat that 
the gods that they eschewed and hated and berated just so happens to be the same God, the object of their worship. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. I'm going to get right into that specific area because it's intriguing and fascinating. But in the interim, there is something sick and twisted about the God of Scripture. And I mean, being angry at Israel to the point of destruction because the expression of love crossed cultural and social bounds with the Amorites and the Jebusites and other nations because they found love with other nations that God is so angry that they found love with another nation. I find that incredible. And interestingly enough, there is nothing in the written record from the aforementioned people, the nations, the Jebusites, Hittites, all of them, that they received and rejected divine revelation from the God of Scripture. So in other words, the brutality inflicted on these people, if we are to believe the story, is because they rejected the God of Scripture. But there's nothing in the written record from any of these folk, any of these nations or people, that they rejected the God of Scripture or the God of Israel. The scribes and storytellers of a nation that brutally slaughtered innocent babies and children give us their perspective of things. So for me, family, it's time that we absolve God of mass murder. We need to absolve our creator of mass murder. The only way to accomplish this goal is to draw a distinction between the God of Scripture as seen through the eyes and prism of Israel and the creator of our universe, there's a distinction between the God of Scripture and our creator, which I, in my personal life, had to reckon with. And I had made that decision personally. And I know some people will argue that the creator and the God of Scripture are the same. And I argue otherwise. I believe the distinction is here. When I speak of God, I am referring to the creator of our universe and the world in which we exist. I'm referring to the creator of the fundamental forces and physics that governs our world and has sustained our universe for 13.8 billion years. The God to whom I refer keeps our sun in a fixed location, suspends our planet in the vastness of space, 93 million miles away from our home star, prevents the planets in our solar system from careening into each other, keeps swirling galaxies from colliding into our Milky Way home, and keeps the universe from collapsing. Reading from my book, The Fire in My Words, the anthology of a social provocateur. The creator isn't confined to theology, doctrine, dogma, or religious systems. There are no barriers or obstacles obstructing a connection with our creator, nor does the creator close doors to his presence, restricts his majesty to a select group or so-called chosen people, or has a singular path to his grace. For me, there is a clear distinction between the God to whom I refer and the God of Scripture. Well, Ron Holland, isn't the God of the Bible responsible for all that you've just mentioned? No. Now, I know this goes against the grain, obviously, and you're not taught about this in Bible study. You don't hear it from your pastor's weekly sermon. But I am about to, I, I want to share this with you with some humbleness, but also with a strong desire for you to hear what you're not being taught because Israel's God and the God of the Bible. I'm going to say this again. Israel's God and the God of the Bible is nothing more than an amalgamation 
of the chief Canaanite deity El or El and the post Exodus Moses deity Yahweh in amalgamation. Interestingly enough, family, the Canaanite deity was worshipped by Israel's earlier ancestors. So when you talk about Yahweh, um, we're talking about a Canaanite deity. And I kind of shy away from the word Jehovah because that has some other connotations. But let's just stick with the word Yahweh. And let's stick with the deity El, E-L. These are Canaanite deities was worshiped by Israel's earlier ancestors, including the patriarchs and the matriarchs. Yahweh derived from a process of evolution and convergence from L. Get this from L to bow B A A L from L to bow to Yahweh during a long period of what biblical scholars call differentiation, which is an economic, generational and religious polemic, which caused a chasm between Israel's E.L. or L and bow worshipers and the newfangled Yahweh adherence. This process is what gave rise to monotheism. Yahweh did not simply reveal himself to Moses or other biblical figures. There was an internal struggle that paved the way for the chief deity of the Canaanite pantheon of gods to emerge as Israel's God. I'm going to repeat that again. Yahweh didn't simply reveal himself to Moses or other biblical figures. There was an internal struggle that paved the way for the chief deity of the Canaanite pantheon of gods to emerge as Israel's God. So for all of you church folk that are yelling and screaming and bellowing El Shaddai, E.L., El Elyon or El Adonai or Elohim that you shout to in church or during praise is the chief Canaanite deity, El, E-L. You're worshiping a pagan deity. And lest I forget Yahweh or Jehovah, please understand that these names are simply an evolution of the names and characteristics of Canaanite deities and that of other neighboring cultures like the Phoenicians and the Hittites and the Assyrians, the Syrians, and of course, the Canaanites. There are striking similarities between Baal and Yahweh. Yeah, Baal and Yahweh may be the same. And I want to go through the similarities between Baal and Yahweh. Similarities that speak to converging deities resulting from merging social environments. These similarities can be found in a host of biblical passages. But I want to draw your attention to just a few from Psalms 29 and Psalm 18. Now, both Baal and Yahweh are riders of the cloud. Both Baal and Yahweh are Lord of hosts in battle. Both Baal and Yahweh are in high places. Both Baal and Yahweh have altars for animal sacrifices. Both Baal and Yahweh have victories over watery foes. Both Baal and Yahweh tremble and shake the earth. And here are some hymns ascribed to Baal, which are strikingly similar to hymns ascribed to Yahweh. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. Now, admittedly, Biblical writers take great pains to point out 
Israel's rejection of idol worship and the purging of pagan influences on uh, its social order. But shrouding efforts to quell Israel's penchant for pagan worship is the seemingly duplicitous relationship between, for instance, King Josiah and his campaign to reform uh, in the 7th century B.C. and the retroactive theological agenda of the Deuteronomy scribes who sought to address current social and religious concerns during three crisis moments in Israel's history. Reading from my book, The Destruction of Israel by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., The Fall of Israel's Southern Kingdom of the Babylonians in 587 B.C., and, of course, the exilic period of the 6th century B.C., we are told that Josiah rediscovered, in quotes, the law and began instituting reform to bring Israel under the banner of a Yahweh-only worship. However, scholars with a great degree of certainty believe that the heavily redacted, rewritten, and revised work of Deuteronomy wasn't discovered, but was a reworking of traditions to both explain the tragedies that befell Israel and to create a unified theology that would bring the nation into a monotheistic social and religious norm. I know a lot of you haven't heard this before. And if you heard it, it was cursory and shallow. I'm trying to go dig a little bit deeper into this and, uh, interestingly enough, uh, according to biblical scholar Dr. Stephen uh, DeMate, I want to read a quote from him, which is fascinating to me. It says, quote, when the Assyrians came in and annihilated the northern kingdom of Israel in 70, 722 B.C., but left the southern kingdom of Judah untouched, at least for a time being, a theological interpretation of history was needed to make sense of these events. It must be borne in mind that the biblical scribes were not recording historical events per se, but rather creating a powerful historicized theology, and that historical Historicized theology was written by the Deuteronomy scribes of the South. Moreover, the Deuteronomists used this occasion, the fall of Israel, to write an immensely influential piece of propaganda. Dr. Mitty goes on, Dimitri goes on to say that Josiah's reforms were undergirded by the theological agenda of Deuteronomist scribes, and he sought to reconquer the northern territories lost when the Assyrians, quote, retreated from the region. Dr. Damati goes on to say, and a host of other scholars believe Josiah's aim was to centralize the Yahweh-only cult, cult, in Jerusalem. So ultimately what emerged as the gods of Israel's forefathers and later generations are the very pagan deities that were rejected. So here's the point. Our faith traditions, how we see God is through the eyes and prism of Israel. And unfortunately, Israel's God and the God of the Bible it's nothing more than a morphed and amalgamated deity with roots in the very pagan cultures that were on the receiving end of Israel's bloodthirsty rampages. Now, the reason I've taken this extraordinary step of establishing a demarcation between our creator and the God of the Bible is because first, I believe much of the confusion and violence in our world is attributed to the kind of religious fundamentalism indicative of the schisms and the rancor and the bloodshed reflected in the pages of scripture. And secondly, the creator has shouldered the blame for humanity's egregious and despicable acts for far too long. The God of scripture is man's creation, fashioned, formulated, and shaped by man's hands. His warped thinking and his scandalous behaviors and intricately woven into what we hail 
as the, quote, word of God, end quote, is a tragic roadmap to the kinds of confusion and violence that has gripped our world through the ages, family. The genocides and the mass murders in the pages of scripture is not the doing of our creator. And contrary to what I was taught and what you believe based on scripture, our creator doesn't smite or smote or orders a wholesale murder and slaughter of entire populations of people. Now, if the violent events reflected in the pages of scripture are indeed true, it's the function of a craven humanity that deserves blame, not our creator. Now, I know many of you will consider this besmirching the Bible, but I view it as absolving God of mass murder and placing the blame of all that we see in this world squarely at the feet of humanity. God is not a mass murderer as reflected in the Bible. And it is time that we take that antiquated view of thinking about God and toss it into the trash bin of history. I want to be clear about this. The Bible and other religious texts have extraordinary value in our lives. There is an unrivaled moral clarity reflected in many of the pages and passages of Scripture. The book of Proverbs, for instance, gives us wisdom. The poetry of Psalms gives us hope and aspiration. The book of Job helps us to cope with struggle. And, of course, the words attributed to Jesus forces us to closely examine our individual humanity. Jesus' words also, or the words attributed to Jesus, helps us to bolster a desired closeness to our Creator. This makes us better people. When I opened the Bible for study, family, contrary to what you might conclude because I have, I sound as if I'm railing against it, but when I open and I search for passages that provide affirmation and personal morality, that is my job as a man. As I read other texts and other books, I want to find affirmation and confirmation and direction. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Because I believe the Bible is teeming with stories germane to my spiritual journey. The Bible and other religious and philosophical writings are critically important to humanity. But these books and passages and pages are the writings of man. Not to be confused with God's authentic word that is outside of anything that man has to offer. And I'll save that issue for another time. To place mass murder and genocide and the despicable acts of violence reflected in the scriptures on our creator's shoulders is an affront to the creator's holiness and the creator's majesty. Equally offensive is to equate the God of the Bible with our creator. They are not the same. Our creator is not a mass murderer. All right, this is Ron Holland, the Fire In My Words podcast. We'll talk with you next week. God bless.